Good morning, everybody. It's nine o'clock. I have um, just completed um, a book on this subject matter that's 280 pages long, single-spaced. And so I'm in two 50-minute sessions. One fellow told me yesterday, he said, it was like drinking from a fire hose yesterday. <laughs> just, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to present everything that's in that book. And that book, by the way, because it's so big and tedious and cumbersome, may never get published. I have, I have no idea. Two or three publishers, publishers are looking at it. I hope to do something shorter uh, for, for personal study, for some class discussion, small groups, church leadership to talk about. This issue simply can't be avoided because it's so prominent in our culture. We have to talk about it. If you weren't here yesterday, in, in two minutes summary, I did a lot of history yesterday. Because the commonest rejoinder that I hear, both in print and orally from people, is, yes, I know the Old Testament says a number of things about same-sex relationships. Uh, it, is, it is toiva. It is, it is abomination. It is, it is despicable in the eyes of God. People who do this are not to be tolerated in, in the community, and they're to be dealt with severely. Know that Paul says this in Romans 1 about that which is par of Husin and kat of Husin, that, that which is uh, according to nature, against nature, natural, unnatural. But the Old Testament and the New Testament weren't talking about what we are able to have in an advanced modern culture that understands more than they did. And they were not talking ever about covenanted, committed, loving, long-term, uh, same-sex relationships. Well, all of us would agree that those texts certainly talk about rape as a weapon of war in ancient and modern cultures. Read about what has gone on in Ukraine of late. Anal rape of defeated soldiers is a way of, of dehumanizing. Um, pedophilia, uh, still massive issue, floated recently in um, Nashville around church leaders. Um, th those sorts of things, of course, they're condemned in those biblical texts. But to say that they did not know about committed long-term same-sex relationships is simply mistaken. And I gave a, a rather long list, looking at only two or three, and, and that's a short list. Um, I worked a lot in Greek literature and Greek history uh, with, with Plato in my doctoral work. Uh, th this not only was known, it was commonplace, widely accepted, attributed to the gods, attributed to the Greek and Roman heroes, which is how they educated young people as to what was appropriate for them to do. And, and pederastic relationships, older men with basically 13 to 20-year-olds, um, it was considered a failure on the part of a family in the elite circles not to have a son placed in a relationship with somebody who would accept him as his beloved and nurture him into a given career field. So uh, I spent a lot of time with history to say it is a very common misperception to say what the Bible is talking about is not what we're talking about. It is what we're talking about. Now, the other thing that I want to say just by way of sort of footnoting yesterday, Jesus said, you know, sometimes it's like plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand. 
to pursue the kingdom of God. He was actually talking about sexual issues in Matthew 5 with regard to that. Um, these are not issues that are to be taken lightly. These are not issues that can be resolved without pain of heart and life and family and, and church. It is for people who are coming out of these relationships, like plucking out an eye, cutting off a hand. But Jesus said that sometimes is involved in pursuing the kingdom of God. The good news mentioned yesterday, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's coining of a word there to talk about same-sex relationships. That's in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, but the good news is in 10 and 11, he says that what some, that's what some of you used to be. Used to be. But you're washed. And, and you're set apart now to God uh, for all that's holy. Now, I don't think that means that all of a sudden they lost same-sex drive, orientation, and urges. Probably some of them, that simply meant chastity for the rest of their lives. I've known of a few people, I've, I've performed a couple of weddings uh, for people who, having been delivered from an orientation that they believed was genetic and permanent, were healed from that by God. And one of them, um, still a good friend, 28 years after doing their wedding, they have two children. Um, they are resource people uh, because she knows his background to people who are dealing with this sort of thing. My experience goes back into the late 60s, early 70s when I was totally caught off guard by a person in a very conservative church that I was serving at the time saying, this is who I am and this is what my life is about. Is there a word from God to me? We are still friends. That relationship has been resolved on a 1 Corinthians 6 basis and has lived a chaste and celibate life, not, not delivered at all from the same-sex orientation that was his or her life. I have worked in Nashville when I was teaching at Vanderbilt Medical School. AIDS was coming into the fore, and the debate was still going on between the French and the Americans what to call it. One of the first things we did at our church one of the elders, Roy Hamley, and I formed two support groups for people in Nashville who were gay, suffering with AIDS, one group for them and the other group for family members. Over a two-year period, I probably did more funerals for people who died of AIDS than any preacher, pastor in Nashville. The person who became the PR director for Nashville Cares, which is the group there that really leads services to this community. We were the only church listed in their brochures for several years that from a conservative background welcomed people and tried to minister to and serve them. We formed two care teams of seven members each to see people through the last four to six months of their lives who were known to be dying of AIDS. So I'm not an enemy to people who are gay. A relative that I love dearly um, is gay. Uh, when he moved back from San Francisco to part of the country where we live, found out where he was, knocked on the door, met me at the door. Well, I guess you're here to tell me I'm going to hell. I said, you know me better than that. I'm here to tell you I love you and I'm so glad you're back within arm's reach of your family. 
because he'd alienated himself from uh, his, his dad and his mom. I'm not an enemy to, but I do represent a point of view that I believe represents God's love that says, I love all of my children, all of whom live in a, a fallen world, but I love them with a call always repent and believe the gospel. Repentance for all of us, for me certainly, had to come before the clarity and the healing and the redemption that comes with the gospel. We pick up the story from, from yesterday, which was largely history and setting that for the sake of looking at what Paul said and, and the word that he coined. Let's go back and um, pursue some things just a little bit further. I, I, I don't know what to call this session. I call it the ink is dry. I still believe scripture means what it says. And I started, or I closed yesterday with a quote with which I choose to start today. Uh, this is from Commonweal Magazine. Commonweal is not a Church of Christ publication. It's a Roman Catholic magazine. Luke Timothy Johnson is a New Testament scholar, conservative Catholic New Testament scholar that I respect highly, teaches at Emory University. He and I sat and talked for an hour about this. Um, and personally, I've read so many things he's written. Luke Timothy Johnson, he wrote, the, or this was published in 2007. Um, Homosexuality in the Church, Two Views. Uh, Eve Tushnet did a response article to it, which is a, a, a brilliant piece in itself. But I want to begin with um, Dr. Johnson's observations. This is the way the article opens. I'm on two slides, consecutive paragraphs. The task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. Johnson says, Rubel, I read the text the same way you do. Those Leviticus texts, uh, those Romans texts, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, they are right there. The ink is dry on them. They say what they say. And the idea of explaining them away that, that he really wasn't talking about the kinds of people in situations where he said that just doesn't work. The linguistic subtleties to say, well, those words don't really mean what. He said, yes, they do. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says, but what are we to do with what the text says? We must state our grounds for standing in tension with the clear commands of Scripture, which he, he does, and include in those grounds some basis in Scripture itself. If I'm going to move away from what I admit the text says at face value, I've got to justify doing so. And he says, as a biblical scholar, I've got to root that somewhere in the Bible. Okay. To avoid this task is to put ourselves in the very position that others insist we already occupy, that of liberal despisers of the tradition and of the church's sacred writings, people who have no care for the shared symbols that define us as Christian. He said, I, I don't want to go that route. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not willing to say, well, just throw the Bible away. If we see ourselves as liberal, then we must be liberal in the name of the gospel and not, as so often has been the case, liberal despite the gospel. Uh, sort of liberalism that just dismisses Scripture. Here's key. I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience 
thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. By so doing, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality, namely that it is a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption and disobedience to God's created order. I respect the candor. I respect the straightforward statement of a New Testament scholar. He says the text says what it says. And people who read it for its value to say, but the ink is dry on that. He said, yeah, that's right. But he said, I think in Scripture there is a way to show that sometimes commands cannot be necessarily set aside but reread and readdressed. So we raised the question, or I raised the question for us at the beginning. Dr. Johnson's thesis is the personal and collective experience of Christians may justify altering or setting aside codified positions that are quite clear in Scripture. He says, not by personal whim, I just don't like that, so I'm going to set it aside, and not by polling or popular vote within a local church, denomination, Christian community at large, but by a process he calls discernment, a spirit-guided analysis of the established position in view of some new unexpected experience that God opens to the community. And his case study is out of the book of Acts. It's Acts 10 and 11. Peter's experienced the household of Cornelius and then in Acts 15 in particular where um, the elders and the apostles, the church leaders meet and having that material of experience by Peter, by Barnabas, by Paul, it's laid before them and they discuss it and they decide, quote from Johnson, the church made bold to reinterpret Torah and to admit Gentiles. Uh, the experiences led to the discernment that it's time to change the notion that this Messiah and the promises of the covenants uh, of the covenant are open to the descendants of Abraham alone. Well, actually, what the apostles and elders discerned was not that our experience trumps Scripture. But you remember the closing speech that was made? After the experiences related by Peter, by Barnabas, by Saul, James gets up and he says, Brothers, we, we shouldn't have been surprised. Amos said this was going to happen. That the fallen tent of David would be rebuilt and it would encompass more than, I don't know what other discussions they had. He could have brought in Isaiah 2, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established in Jerusalem and what will happen? All the nations are going to flow into it. This is not an experience that counters scripture and allows them to reinterpret Torah it is the fulfillment of Scripture and the promises of God all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, I'm setting you and your descendants aside so that ultimately what? All people can share in these blessings and all would be blessed through you. 
the experience was fulfilling, not altering or setting aside. Furthermore, if you read Acts carefully, Luke has traced this trajectory of Gentile inclusion. In Acts 2, what did Peter say? In quoting Joel, he said, look, the Spirit of God has been poured out now on all flesh, the King James Version, all people. In Acts 2, in, in the sermon that Peter preaches at the end, he says, look, this promise is, is for you. Listen, under my voice right now, it's for your children, future generations of Israel. And finish it. All those who are far off. Jewish language for the way we refer to the non-Jew, the Gentiles of the world. Did Peter get it at that point? Well, Galatians lets us in on the fact that he was reluctant to get it. Paul said I had to withstand him to the face when he had problems implementing what the Spirit led him to say on Pentecost. Acts 8, the gospel, goes to Samaritans. Uh, Philip goes down, has a successful evangelistic crusade among the Samaritans, only to be called away to meet an Ethiopian. An Ethiopian who, by the way, is a eunuch. Eunuchs were not non-gendered or transgendered persons. They were males who, to use the language of Jesus from Matthew 19, some eunuchs are born that way. Uh, chromosomal abnormalities, that still happens. A very small percentage of people are, are, go beyond the word intersex here, or beyond the word unit, are intersex. Something like 0.017% of people, a fractional percent. Uh, chromosomal abnormalities occur. He said other people are made eunuchs by men. They're castrated, uh, perhaps against their will. Uh, groups like the priests of Sybil, uh, a, a group that was very well known in the days of Jesus, Peter and Paul. Uh, they accepted castration into a sort of a transgendered role to serve Sybil. Um, but the, the gospel is, is widening its base here. It's, it's outside of its narrow Jewish context. In fact, in Acts 10, Peter is crossing at least three boundaries. He's in the home of Simon the Tanner. Tanners were perpetually unclean because they dealt with corpses and skinning and tanning hides, right? He's in the home of Simon the Tanner, and he has the vision about food, which really isn't about food. Uh, anything that God's cleansed, don't you call common or unclean? And that sets him up for the next move, which is a knock at the door, and there are people come from a centurion, a Roman Gentile centurion, who's also had a vision, send for this man in Joppa named Peter. He'll come down and share it. Acts 11, Antioch then becomes the hub for Gentile evangelism by Barnabas and Paul. And ironically, Luke Timothy Johnson's, I think, innate, because he loves Scripture, his innate drawnness is to seek Scripture to validate his claim. And the claim is what? Experience can sometimes modify scripture. It's not modifying scripture. It's fulfilling scripture. It's like saying Jesus comes and sets aside the Old Testament anticipations of Messiah and says, no, accept me. No, Jesus came and said, accept me as the Messiah because everything that scripture had anticipated about the Messiah is what you see. There is no background of prophetic expectation that the rules are going to change with regard to same-sex activity. There are countless Old Testament anticipations of the broadening of the heart of God through the covenant promises to include Gentiles. There are none. 
that would set aside what we're going to look at in, in Leviticus, Genesis, Ezekiel. The only argument that can be made from Scripture, and Richard Hayes points this out among others, um, with regard to a case about same-sex relationships is not a positive case, it's a negative case. Yeah, we know those are there, the prohibitions, uh, the, the orders that, that this is not to be done, uh, the warnings, th these are consequences that come. Even in this life, Paul says the wrath of God is in fact in those very events being poured out into the lives of people, the confusion, the chaos it creates. There is no positive case in Scripture. There's only, but maybe we misinterpreted the texts. That really is not the case. Um, so think about it. If the experiences of Jesus, the experiences, were proof of his messianic claims only because they were consistent with Scripture, and if it is the case um, that the experiences of the apostles and those earliest Christ followers with Gentiles were not freestanding, they had to come together and discuss them in the light of Scripture. And it was, and it was James saying, yes, we shouldn't be shocked and we can't fight this. This is what Scripture said was going to happen. Well, if that's the case, then we don't have any justification for reversing the process to claim that some divergent experience that I've had, we've had, someone we love has had, nullifies or reverses Scripture. You say that and then go back to say, that person is no less loved of God because they're living at the moment outside the will of God than any other of us in his or her moment of deep need for repentance. Uh, repentance is the call of the gospel to all of us about one issue or multiple, in my life, multiple issues. And the same thing may be true for someone you love, I love, or you with regard to a same-sex orientation. And I accept the, the language of same-sex orientation. And I do believe both by nature and nurture, there is an orientation predisposition to certain behaviors. So let's look at Scripture in a bit more detail. Let's read from the beginning. The Bible is not a book that sets out to be anti-rape anti-prostitution, anti-pedophilia, uh, anti-pederasty. The Bible is a book that sets out in a positive way to define what it is to be human and what it is to live in healthy, wholesome, and God-approved relationships. That means then that the Bible is pro-marriage. Not that everyone must marry to be a complete person. That's not true. Jesus Paul says, you know, I could wish that other people accepted the celibate life that I have for the sake of serving in the kingdom. But for the human race generally, the Bible is pro-marriage, pro-family, pro-one-flesh union. And the things that we look at as prohibitions and that some in a negative rhetorical way want to call clobber texts, they're not clobber texts. They're, they're guardrails around what God offers as holy and what serves his purpose. 
And from Genesis 1 forward, the Bible lays the foundation for this affirmation. You can't build a theology on one verse. I'm not trying to do that. This is a summary verse that I choose to say, among other verses that I could have chosen. Here's a verse that says, here is the place for wholesome sexuality within the plan of God. The verse is Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Marriage is defined in this text the way it is all the way through the Bible. It's never defined in anything other than a male-female covenanting with one another. Sometimes arranged by families in, the, in that culture, much less self-chosen than in ours. Honored. And the marriage bed, the coite, marriage bed, the, the, the intercourse event is, is really what's at, at stake here. It should be kept pure in what sense? God will judge the adulterer. The word adultery is not specifically a sex word. It's a covenant word. Anyone who's already formed a marriage and who then takes a third partner, maybe the male taking another female, that's not a same-sex word. Anyone who breaks covenant having entered into a marriage, that's outside the will of God. That's covenant breaking. Uh, that's adultery. And all the sexually immoral. Boy, there's your sweeping broad word. Uh, Paul forms a, a, a brand new word, coins a new word. I, I showed you yesterday. There's a rather extensive vocabulary that Paul had to draw from about the sorts of things that were sexual behaviors in his day and time. And many, not all of those words are used in various places in the New Testament. But here's just a broad word uh, comparable to Jesus talking about uh, from the heart certain things emerged, again using a broad term there, porneia. Let's go back to the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, you have the foundation laid for everything that the Bible is ever going to have to say about sexuality. God created humans, mankind, not a gender word here. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Genesis 1, I call a wide-angle shot that sets the stage for what the human mission will be. What is that mission? The next verse. Be fruitful. Multiply. Uh, govern the creation that I've entrusted now to you, this good creation. Govern it wisely. Genesis 2 is, is the zoom shot against the wide-angle of Genesis 1. When in his state of being alone, key word we'll talk about in a minute, um, human, Adam, um, is not good. Oh, he's good, but it's not good that he's alone. And so the process begins of creating um, an etzer connecto, a a partner suitable to, not, a, not an assistant, not a junior member of the human race. That, that's Greek idea, remember? Uh, the, the superiority of male to female, etc. That's not a biblical idea. What is going to emerge as the 
suitable partner, appropriate helper to the man. He is the suitable partner and appropriate helper to what is brought to him. It is in the partnership that the fulfillment occurs. So when in this creation story, Adam is placed under good anesthesia, general anesthesia, falls into a deep sleep. Um, rib, rib perhaps side part, some major part of his very own physical form. And there is brought to him, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is one of the, one of the few times with Hebrew or Greek where um, something of the wordplay will come through into English that's there in the original language. Um, woe man, W-O man, as the suitable helper to man, M-A-N. You have very much the same thing here. This woman, Isha, is created from the man, Ish, Ish, now has his Isha. So in the close-up, it's not good for the sake of the mission for which humans have been put into the world. Birds are here. Fish are here. Um, wild animals are here. Uh, plants uh, are all over the earth. And they're capable of, of reproduction. The man is created. He needs a suitable helper to fulfill his mission. And at the end of that close-up shot, verse 24, this is why a man, a male, leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, the ish to his isha, and they become one flesh. The Genesis norm is established here. Now, I've preached and used this text at a wedding in a ways that probably we've overdone a bit. The male-female union that is brought about in Genesis 2 is not about fixing the human psychological loneliness that we in our romantic era uh, think is so critical. It is critical. And, and Adam and Eve fulfill that companionship role for each other, not saying not that that's not what happened. But the man in the original creation is alone for the purpose for which he's created. What is his mission? The mission is now that this suitable habitat is available, fill it up with your kind. Um, replenish, fill the earth and then subdue, not rape and exploit, but rule over it in wisdom. Adam sees the image of God, the sameness of this person who's brought to him to be his suitable helper. She is bone of my bones. She is flesh of my flesh. He'd named the animals. He hadn't found flesh of flesh and bone of bone among the animals. Certainly no partner for reproduction. Adam sees a sex-gendered differentiation now. There is sameness, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. But there's sexual and gender difference 
She is Isha. Males and females are both complete persons as a male, as a female. It is not true. In fact, I think we've sometimes made an idol out of marriage and teen classes are always how to find the right person to marry. <laughs> Some people don't need to get married. <laughs> Some people need to live the life that Jesus and Paul lived. And, and that I, I have a dear, beloved friend. We, we, we didn't grow up together. Educationally, we have grown up together and spent countless hours and have worked together in various fronts. Made the very deliberate choice. He said, given what I intend to do in terms of Christian scholarship and ministry and mission work, he took Paul's counsel very seriously. He said, I, I think it would be a mistake to marry. Came very close, got, got close to a, a, a dear, sweet lady who said, I'll make any sacrifice to be part of that. He said, it just would not be fair. And his entire life and adult ministry and career have been as a chosen celibate for the sake of the kingdom of God. Chastity is not the same as celibacy. Celibacy is a gift that some will choose to accept and believe that that's a charisma from God to them. Chastity is the obligation that every person has in his or her sexual life. It's the obligation I have. I'm married. I am not celibate, but I must be chaste in terms of my relationship to other women, to other men, to other sexual situations. Males and females are both complete persons, and single or married state is a choice for us to make. But God created male and female Different words are used here as binaries, um, in, as complementarian uh, partners in this human experience. This was God's choice for the race. And the aloneness that Adam was experiencing, it's not good that he's alone. He'd been given the mission of fill this place up and, and rule it. Um, a single sex does not reproduce in the animal world. And so the aloneness that was satisfied by the bringing of the woman was not exclusively, but immediately and, and primarily in the moment of creation for the sake of being able to fulfill the basic mission of reproducing the race, keeping the race going, so that every future human does not have to be created directly from the hand of God. And in that relationship, the debate comes out, yeah, but you're saying that's prescriptive. That's normative. That's the way it needs to be, should be. God wants it to be. I, I think you can just read it as descriptive. That's just, that's just what happened. Well, that needs to be explored just a little bit as to whether that's prescriptive or descriptive. Everything here could be put in quotes. It is a direct quote from Karen Keene's book, Scripture, Ethics, and the Possibility of Same-Sex Relationships. It's one of the best written. I, I have, over the last several months, I've read very few books that take the position I take. I've read everything I can get my hands on that makes an affirming case for same-sex relationships. Part of that's the way I'm trained academically. Um, my training in philosophy says if there's a view that you're going to question, do everything you can to prove that's true because it's not fair of you to oppose a case unless you know everything you can find out about why anybody would hold it. I don't think people take cases willy-nilly or take positions willy-nilly because they're out to subvert the will of God. 
Maybe some do. I don't think that's the case with Ms. Keene. It's a very well-written book in a, a kind tone. This is what she sees from Genesis 1 and 2 in light of Jesus' use of it in Matthew 19. Jesus is asked a question in Matthew 19 about, of all things, marriage. Um, and whether or not uh, divorce for any cause is appropriate. And, and then they begin to wonder, well, if, if, if we really have to make this work, maybe some of us ought to consider celibacy. Well, we'll look at that text in a little bit. But Ms. Keene, I want to call her Karen, like we're friends, like I, I'd like to meet her and talk with her someday. But uh, she takes the Genesis 1 and 2 material, screens it through Jesus' use of it, and says, look, this is a quotation directly from the book. We find the following key aspects of marriage in Genesis 2 and Jesus' interpretation of Genesis. Each of the bullet points is hers. Not a word is left out or changed. Companionship. Not good to be alone. Mutual support of a strong ally. And she uses these words that I've used. The etzer, not unilateral, since Adam is by definition a counterpart. Kinegdo, as counterparts, they mirror each other. The etzer kinegdo, the suitable helper to one another. There is common, commonality and similarity. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Adam now has a human spouse. Bestiality's ruled out. He's seen the animals. He's seen them in their pairs. He's named them. But, but bestiality is not a possibility for Adam, in case anybody might have thought under certain circumstances it was. I've only encountered and counseled one person who had a sexual affair with an animal. Still happens. No, bestiality's ruled out. Animals are too other. The establishment of flesh-of-my-flesh flesh kinship tie, not incest, be redundant. One doesn't need to form kinship bond with someone who's already kin. Must leave the family of origin to find a spouse. Can't, can't be incestuous. Faithfulness. No adultery or divorce. A pair. Not polygamy or polyandry. I, I think... That reads a whole lot into Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, reads a whole lot into the use Jesus makes of it. I think it's all appropriate. I think some of those would need some support from some other texts that would provide the support to say that. Um, but here, here's my question. The one thing that she doesn't see in all of that is sex and gender differentiation. But it's the one thing that's named not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five. Her, her case is all of this, which is in Genesis 1 and 2 and affirmed by Jesus, can be satisfied by loving, committed, same-sex partners, male, male, female, female on the basis of what is prescriptive. What's prescriptive is it's loving, it's committed, it's faithful, it's not polygamous. A fair reading of that text says, yeah, but there's a bullet point missing. 
Yes, there is. Jesus did see Genesis 1 and 2 as normative. But even in the context where he's discussing it, it's normative to a man and woman married and whether or not for any reason they could get a divorce. The importance of Genesis ought to be pretty clear. The NIV translates mankind. The new RSV, when you see the UE, there's an updated edition of the new RSV. I want you to know I read the latest one. Uh, uh, NIV says mankind. New RSV, UE says humans, which really I like better. Um, mankind can be read as gender specific. It isn't. Humans. Humans as such are male and female. And the Bible affirms what science says. There are two and only two sexes. Somebody says, yeah, but Rubel, I've read some things lately that there are more than two sexes. Not from a hard scientist you haven't. You've read some things from psychologists and you've read some things maybe from a biologist who is also head of a gender studies program who says, well, sex is no longer binary. We've we'll, we'll develop that in a minute. Your sex, sex and gender, the Bible talks about what we mean by the term sex as in male or female and doesn't distinguish, break that out from gender. We do today. And that's okay that we do, but we need to understand the relationship. Your sex is defined by the way your body is organized to produce a certain type of gamete. Well, what's my gamete? Well, it's either your sperm or the eggs that your body is able to create. And sex is binary. There is no third gamete type. Intersex persons are not a third gender. They are chromosomal abnormalities of the two types. Sex is 99.98 distinguishable always by gamete type. Now, this is where you have to do a bit of an excursus, sidetrack. But people today, and in the literature that I've read, Rubel, I read about a gender spectrum or gender fluidity or transgender personalities. I understand that. The hard sciences, though, will tell you there are two sexes. Uh, Richard Dawkins, in an interview about 10 days ago, um, said, look, his, his language is at one level obscene, at another le level harsher than, than I want to use. He said, there are only two sexes from a scientific point of view. And he said, conversation to the contrary leaves the hard sciences behind. Now, I know that uh, a few years ago, Facebook offered 72 in addition to male and female, a total of 74 um, gender choices. Today it, alter, it offers unlimited number, uh, male, female, or other, and you can, you can self-define. If you make a passport application, you'll have not two but three um, sex choices, M, F, or X, male, female, or neither, none, combination of them. Hard science is there too. The soft sciences. Sex can be redefined along a spectrum, and that spectrum is defined in terms of your self-perception. I've known people who 
with sexually male bodies said, I identify as female. I've known people who with sexually feminine bo female bodies say, I, I self-define as male. Even with radical surgeries, their cellular, their, their hard science sex definition does not change. Facebooks, passports, athletics, a number of people who have nothing at stake in the religious issue. There's a daddy in Nashville, Brentwood area, who's really concerned because his aspiring athlete, born female, is being beaten regularly by a transgendered female, um, someone born a male about six, seven months older than her, whose body mass, muscle mass, bone structures significantly um, more capable for certain athletic events than his daughters can be. Feelings and secondary traits don't change the facts and the primary traits. Here's what I mean. The primary traits are what your body is designed to produce in terms of gametes, sperm or ova. The secondary traits are, oh, as you begin to go through puberty, breast development. Um, some men joke about their man boobs. Uh, having large chest, breast areas, not exclusive to females, but that's, that's one of the common secondary traits. Um, width and structure of hips, different bone size and muscle mass generally. Those are secondary traits. And then when you get into secondary traits, you, you talk not just about physiological traits, but you talk about choices of behavior. Um, you may be familiar with this. This is version 3.3 of it. I use it. I'll show you four in a moment. It's essentially the same except the other one becomes just a bit more explicit. This is called the genderbred person. It's not copyrighted. It, it's, it's used in schools to educate children um, about the issues we're talking about, sex and gender. And to be talked about in four different ways. Their language, sex is what's between your legs. It's whether you have a penis or a vagina. Your gender expression is what you choose to present to others in terms of maybe the clothes you wear. Uh, maybe you are born male and you have a penis, but you wear a dress or, or female clothing. That, that's part of your gender expression. You choose to express yourself. Um, identity, your internal self-perception. I think I was born to the wrong body or I, I'm not comfortable being female. I choose to be, I want to be. And then your attraction. The, the sex slash gender to which you are drawn. Notice that in none of these, on the left side, this is the absence. This is the absence marker. And beginning with biological sex, the language is you had a biological sex assigned to you when you were born. The obstetrician didn't assign 
a sex to your birth certificate. Uh, he read your body. And he recorded, except in those incredibly rare, and most obstetricians never see such cases, of an intersex where the genitalia are to some degree ambiguous. That's the 0 0.017 or 18. According to the genderbred person, th this is not a given. This is a sign to you. And over the period of your life, you do not, you don't exist as a female or a male. Your biological sex exhibits more femaleness or maleness. Same thing with regard to gender expression, gender identity. These, these are not givens. In fact, notice, they're never given on any one of these. They're chosen along a spectrum that you choose. This is version four of it. I include it because it now includes this category of a sex assigned at birth, not witnessed or seen or recorded, but assigned, with the clarification. Your identity is not equivalent to your expression. Your expression is not equivalent to your sex, is not equivalent to your gender, is not equivalent to your sexual orientation. I think that could be confusing to uh, third grader, seventh grader, twelfth grader. Very quickly, and it'll have to be very quickly. Have we misread Genesis so badly for 35? It's possible that we can misread texts. But I do not believe that we've reread it. The story of Sodom, the revisionist take on Sodom is it's, it's inhospitality and attempted gang rape and arrogant insensitivity. And that's what Ezekiel identifies. Well, that view overlooks the judgment of Sodom was determined before anybody got there. The men who showed up at Lot's house had already told Abraham what was about to happen and they were there to tell him. It wasn't that Sodom was destroyed because they received them inhospitably. Genesis 13 says some really vile things had been going on there and God determined that they were going to be judged. Uh, the knowledge, uh, bring them out so that we may know them. You know, the, the yada. Uh, that's commonly used in the Old Testament to talk about just getting acquainted with. Ten times the word appears in Genesis. Six of the ten times in Genesis it's about sexual experience. Um, that seems to be what's at stake here. And among her many sins, Ezekiel talks about her arrogance and insensitivity to the poor in Ezekiel 16, 49, but read verses 15 and 51. The, they are also called to account, yes, for though sin very seldom occurs in, in isolation, <laughs> very much in clusters. So yes, in Ezekiel 16, 49, uh, the people of Sodom are indicted uh, for being overfed, unconcerned, didn't help the poor and the needy, but keep reading. They were haughty, did detestable things. The toiva, the things talked about in Leviticus. They did detestable things. NIV translates plural. It's actually singular. In Leviticus 16, it's the singular that's talked about for sexual sin. They were haughty and did detestable, did the detestable before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Um, 
the New Testament characterization is very clear. Jude 7 says it was because of their sexual immorality. Well, that's just Jude's... Under, I, I, I have a high view of Scripture. I think Jude interpreted it correctly, if I might be mistaken at times. The Holiness Code of Leviticus, 16, or Leviticus 17 to 26. Chapter 18 focuses on sexual behaviors and to have sexual relations with a man as with a woman is detestable. If he has sexual relations with a man as with a woman, they've done things that are detestable. Say, so, well, there's so many things that are called detestable, yes, but you judge the severity of what occurs um, by, I presume, the penalty attached to it. For other uncleannesses in the holiness code, you're unclean until dusk and you must bathe. Some of them you're unclean for a week and must go through purification rituals. No purification rituals for same-sex coupling. It's judgment. These are moral offenses. They're not cultic offenses. They're offenses against the nature of a holy God. Jesus handled it in a way that as we close, I would say, I hope we would learn to handle some things. Jesus had a woman brought to him who had violated one of those abominations, detestable things extreme sexual sins that under the law could have been punished with capital punishment. Jesus played a legalist game with the folks. He said, well, yeah, uh, whoever's without sin in this, uh, not whoever's perfect, whoever's not complicit in setting this thing up, you throw the first stone, the rest of us will join in. See, they knew that in Deuteronomy 19, Jesus knew anyway, whether some of them did or not, but if you bear false witness, if you're complicit to a sin before, during, or after, you set this woman up, where's the man? If you give false testimony, then the penalty that your lie would have brought on them is to be visited on you. I think it's significant. John says the older people dropped their rocks and left <laughs> before the younger ones did. They, they may not have known that that's what they were about to bring on themselves. But when it was all over, Jesus didn't say, "Hun, the rules have changed. We don't have to worry about the holiness code anymore. When Jesus defended her under the law to show her grace, at the end he said, you got a break today. Leave that life of sin. I don't know if she did or not. I hope she did. But I know that was God's will for her. That's how we should show grace and kindness. We should, as Paul says... Yes, Christians have been washed and sanctified and set free from that. God has given them strength by the indwelling Holy Spirit to, to live chaste lives. God will give you that option, but what God will not do is say, well, the rules have changed, or at least they've changed for you. The holiness of God is to be respected. As we do it with love and compassion, but without trying to move Romans 1 to Romans 14, Romans 1 is where Paul says these are things that dishonor God and dishonor you if you do them. Romans 14, here are some things, well, there are different views on that. Eating meats, offered to idols, uh, drinking wine, observing holy day. Do as you please on that. Can't move Romans 1 to Romans 14. Paul knew the difference and dealt with them appropriately. Lord God... An issue so complex in our culture, an issue that involves people that we care about, friends, family members, folks in our churches who are caught up in a culture 
that inclines them to experiment with and to be caught up in things that are wrong. Help us to be people of compassion and love and mercy and gentleness, but help us to understand that truth does in fact require repentance and conformity to that which is holy. And let us without self-righteousness, without smugness, appeal for all that's right and holy, but to do it in the spirit and in the name of Jesus, through whom we pray to you now. Amen. Thank you for being here. God bless your day.